Um, guys, we come tonight to, a, um, to one of the two stumbling blocks in, um, in the Apostles' Creed. It's, it's, if, you're, if you're new here, we've been studying the Apostles' Creed on Wednesday nights, but um, you know, every time we, we do or uh, recite it together, um, I always get you know, the same two questions over and over and over again, just you know, week after week. One has to do with the word Catholic, which we're, that's, that's one of the stumbling blocks. Um, and then, and we even have an asterisk now in the bulletin about what the word means. So that one should be taken care of. But the other one has to do with uh, he descended into hell. And that's what we're looking at tonight. How about that? I mean, you know, you have thought, wondered all your life about that he descended into hell. So tonight we're going we're gonna to take a look at it. Guys, um... The, the clause, he descended into hell, first appeared in the Apostles' Creed somewhere around 390 A.D. Um, it somewhat disappeared and then uh, resurfaced in about 650 A.D. So, I mean, it has been around. It's got some historical pedigree to it. But um, you perhaps have come from settings where you may have used the Apostles' Creed but uh, this clause of descent into hell, were, were, that clause was not included. I think if you have a Methodist background, for instance, I don't think uh, this, this clause of he descended into hell uh, is included when the Methodist church uses the Apostles' Creed. Um, and um, it, so it's not included, that is the clause isn't, in some editions, like if you were to take a Methodist hymnal and find the Apostles' Creed in the back, you wouldn't find this clause in there, but it, it's, um, uh, it's elsewhere, and some even add an asterisk next to uh, the clause, he descended into hell. Uh, I guess one of the reluctances that we have is that it is very much promoted and very much uh, a part of Roman Catholic and Lutheran, but Roman Catholic doctrine. They call it the harrowing of hell. I love that phrase, the harrowing <clears throat> of hell. But it's very much a part of the uh, Roman Catholic understanding uh, of the Apostles' Creed. However, the way Rome understands it and the way I'm going to teach it tonight are two separate things, so bear with me. Um, the whole idea of descent into hell is, um, is found, or at least it's shadowing, uh, three pretty cryptic statements in the New Testament. One is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Let me read it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here it goes. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's one of the places. Uh, another one is, is in chapter 4 of First uh, Peter, same, same book, chapter 4, um, and uh, it seems like, no, well, maybe it's, there's, I know it's in there one more, uh, one more time, but um, um, verse 6 of chapter 4, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh in the way that people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. And then there's, there is a, a statement made by Paul in um, Ephesians 4, verse 9, uh, where he says, in saying he ascended, 
what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. Okay, all I'm saying, guys, is those are the three statements found in the New Testament on which this whole idea is based, and it is the effort on the part of the early church to try and reflect the truth that is contained in those three places, okay? Now, what they say about them, uh, what, um, what is said about them differs. Um, Rome, and, and I, in, in large, measure, large measure Lutheranism, see this statement, this clause, as describing a mission of victory where Jesus sets out to liberate captives. So the thing that becomes important is the timeline. (laughs) So if Jesus descended into hell, when did he do that? Assuming for a moment that that's certainly true, uh, that he did, when did he do that? And Rome and Lutheranism agree that it takes place after he dies and before he resurrects. You know, I get this question a couple of times a year. Where was Jesus on those three days that he was in? Where was he? Well, um, Rome and Lutheranism would agree that in the, that three-day period that he, was, he had descended into hell to preach to the captives in prison. Um, so this descent takes place between the hour of his death and the moment of his resurrection. Um, Now, (laughs) um, concerning the texts on which this is based, um, the one in 1 Peter 3 is certainly unclear about the definition of the spirits in prison. That little phrase, spirits in prison, who are the spirits and what is the prison? That's very, um, that's a very difficult thing to, to, to try and manage. But here's what Rome says. <clears throat> Guys, you're going to have to, you're going to have to think for a minute. Jesus is on the cross and he's crucified between two thieves, right? One of them mocks, the other one doesn't. He turns to the, the one that doesn't mock, and he says, uh, I tell you of a truth, this day thou shalt be in paradise with me. Okay? So we are thinking that the thief on the cross immediately goes to be with Jesus in, in heaven. All right? Now, if you want to take a look at your text, in fact, why don't you, why don't you go over there and look at it? It's in, it's in Luke chapter 23. Um, and it, it'll be clearer if you're, if you're staring at it, I think, um, I hope. Uh, Luke 23, um, at verse 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, look at it. Look at, look at the words. Truly I say to you. Okay, see that comma after you? If you move the comma (laughs) and put it on the other side of today, then it would read this way. 
Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. (laughs) And that's what Rome does. Now, um, first of all, guys, I hope you know that in the Greek New Testament, there is no punctuation. There were no periods, there were no semicolons, there were no commas. Uh, In fact, there was not even a separation of words. In fact, uh, in the New Testament, when when they were writing a sentence in the New Testament Greek, and they would have one word here, and there's a word, and then there's another word, what they would do is they would stick in what's called a new it's an in. Um, but that was the only separation in between the words. So there was, no, there was no punctuation used in the New Testament. So to, to rest your case on the misplacement of a comma. <laughs> See, you didn't know that stuff went on, did you? That's why pay me the big bucks. Um, um, <laughs> um, but that is how they defend this argument. That Jesus, um, after he died and before he resurrected, goes to hell to preach to the saints in prison or the, the spirits in prison. So what he says to the thief on the cross is not that you're going to be in paradise with, in heaven with me today. That's not what he says. What he says is, I'm saying this today, uh, and you're going to be with me in, in paradise. That's, that's the ground of the argument, folks. Um, now, um, go back to a kind of a Protestant understanding of Jesus. Where was he in those, those three days? Um, most of evangelicalism would say that he uh, had returned to his father for those three days. Um, so if you're, if you're comfortable with that, then this is something that you won't be comfortable with. Having the spirit of Jesus in the presence of the father and at the same time on a preaching mission to hell, do you see that? That is going to create some very serious Christological problems. Because Rome is saying that Jesus on those three days was not with his father. He was in hell preaching to the spirits in prison. Um, Another uh, thing that you might want to think about as you consider what you believe, um, Tell me when and where we are told that spirits, whoever they are, or spirits in hell, according to Rome, are given a second chance to repent. Do you remember the parable in Luke 16 about Lazarus and the rich man? And uh, uh, the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven and and, uh, the rich man in hell says, would you send uh, Lazarus to me and, you know, just bring me a drop of water? And remember the reply is, there is a great chasm fixed. Some of the scariest words in the New Testament. A great chasm fixed. So the idea that Jesus headed to hell to to preach to saints in prison 
means that he would have to uh, step over that great chasm fixed. Okay. Now, I'm just telling you that Rome believes in, a, in, the, in the clause. He descended into hell, all right? But that's the way they, they explain it. I'm about to give you another explanation. Now, folks, if the explanation that I am about to give you is true, and I think it is, but if it is, I love this clause. That is, he descended into hell. If it means what I'm about to tell you, then it is precious. Guys, um, okay, I told you that the problem was a timeline. Um, Reformed Christianity has always understood his descent into hell, that the timeline is something more like this. That that descent in hell takes place while he is still in agony on the cross. Okay? So it's not after he's dead, it's before he's dead that that descent takes place. And it is on display and in evidence when Jesus cries out this, this cry of dereliction, My God, my God! Why hast thou forsaken me? Ladies and gentlemen, the answer to that question, the question that Jesus just posed, is the, um, the quintessential theological issue in all of Christianity. Why did the Father forsake him? If you don't have an, an answer to that, my, my friends, I don't think you understand the gospel. Some of the most profoundly mysterious words in the entire Bible is that quote. By the way, you know he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. Um, Jesus, as he's dying, is quoting Psalm 22. He quotes more of it later on, or he quotes more of Psalm 22. But it is, um, in some sense, Jesus had to be cut off from the favor and the fellowship with his father, something that he had enjoyed from all eternity. Now, guys, I chose those words very carefully. And let me tell you why. I've got to tell you a little quick story. Um, when we were in seminary, uh, you know, back then, the, 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 the only model available to you to go to seminary was that you, you, know, you quit your job, you packed up your things, and you moved to a seminary campus, and you stayed there for three or four years. Um, and that's what we did. They don't do that anymore. I mean, uh, I mean, I heard that Reform Seminary in Orlando, Florida, had nine incoming freshmen uh, last fall, or I guess it was last year. Nine. I mean, that a seminary cannot survive on nine students. But but anyway, back when I went, um, you know, that's that's the only way there was. A, there wasn't anything online, you know. Um, so you you moved your family there, and and um, we moved into this little house that. Um, it was the little shack. Uh, it, it, it doubled as firewood. Uh, people, I mean, it was just a sweet little place, but um, we loved it. Um, <laughs> um, we, we, had this, we had this heater. It, it was, the only heat in the house was this heater that was in the living room. It was just one, and it, and it just, it was a blast furnace. 
And when Susie's parents came down to visit us and they saw that I had taken their daughter into this house with this blast furnace uh, keeping us warm at night, uh, they, they, were, they were advising uh, contacting an attorney. Um, but anyway, we had a wonderful seminary. We, 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 I look back on that quite fondly. But anyway, um, your first year in seminary, you're, you're, you're really kind of managing the Greek language. You're trying to get that down. And then once you've got that down, the, you, you start these systematic courses. And, and then in your, in your, they call it the middle year and the senior year, um, I mean, you are doing refinement of your whole theological system. And one of the teachers there was a guy by the name of DeYoung, um, uh, Dr. DeYoung. He was a New Testament professor. And, and seminary education is basically learning stuff and then writing papers. And then you take tests every now and then, but you write papers, paper after paper after paper. Um, and so in, in New Testament theology, uh, DeYoung assigns this paper, and I forget what, he, what we were, but, but I wrote on this, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's what I was writing on. And um, in the, toward the back of the paper, towards the end of the paper, I made a statement. In fact, I've got this thing somewhere. It's still in the file. I looked for it this afternoon. I couldn't find it. But, I mean, it so impacted me that I still had the paper. Um, and I found it every, oh, every now and then. I run into it, but I looked for it. And I couldn't find it. But anyway, I turn in the paper, and towards the back of it, I make a statement like this. That when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why, if that was, why hast thou forsaken me? That for a moment, the Trinity was ripped asunder. Pretty dramatic, don't you think? <laughs> Dr. DeYoung took a red pen and he drew a line completely across the whole, the whole page. And wrote on it in red. Never. That's all he wrote. I had just said something horribly wrong. That the Trinity at this moment was torn asunder. No, ladies and gentlemen, the Trinity is never torn asunder. But you heard, I told you I chose my words. Well, he is cut off. From the favor and the fellowship of the Father that he had known from all eternity. Did you notice he doesn't call him Father? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So in this moment, he is cut off from that which he had enjoyed from all eternity. Now, also... Surely, he knows the answer to the question that he just posed. It's not like he's dying on a cross and wondering what's going on to him. My God, my God, I mean, I don't understand. <coughs> no, no, no. Gang, the, the, um, this is not a display of confusion on his part. But it is a witness to the onlookers that he was experiencing God forsakenness. Not because of anything that he had done. Because he is experiencing that God forsakenness on behalf of his people. 
his wing, he descended into hell. That he, at that moment, experiencing God-forsakenness. That is hell. By the way, that is hell. God-forsakenness. That's hell. When there's no access to the kindness and goodness of this God and you're forsaken, that's hell, ladies and gentlemen. And that's what the Son is experiencing on our behalf. Um, Nowhere in all of the New Testament is the reality of God's wrath more sharply manifested than in the words that are contained in that one question. When he forsakes his only begotten and only beloved son. Now, if that's what that clause means, which I think it is, by the way, but if that's what it means, that is precious. That he went to hell to save me. He experiences the hell that I don't have to ever taste. And you see it in that moment where the father removes his favor and his fellowship from his own begotten son. That's what it means, folks. That's what descended into hell means. Now, let me do one other thing, and um, this is kind of an extra. It's kind of a pastoral extra, okay? This is free of charge. Um, Guys, in this section of the Apostles' Creed, when we said um, that he was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. He was um, crucified, um, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. Now, in that, those, I guess that's a couple of three clauses right there. What you get in there, um, I don't know that it was intended by the authors of the Apostle Creed. But what you get in there is a real um, theology of suffering. Um, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Gang, Christianity involves not a denial of suffering, but an explanation of it and victory promised over it. Now, let me try to explain what I mean. (laughs) Guys, um, you notice um, that the sufferings of Jesus Christ have meaning. So do yours. The sufferings of Jesus Christ have purpose. His suffering is for his people. There is reason and and, and purpose and design and meaning behind it. And there is in yours as well. In Christ, redemption from ultimate suffering is accomplished how? 
through suffering. The way that you and I avoid eternal suffering is through temporal sufferings borne by the Savior. You know, guys, um, I, I think you've heard this a dozen times before, but um, I'll be hackneyed and trite too. You know that the number one command given in the New Testament, given in the Scriptures, is the command "Fear not." Um, but the invitation for us to fear not is not—it's it, not some call to an irrational maudlin sentimentality. It is followed by a reason. We are told to fear not, and then we are given a reason. Don't fear, says Jesus in John 16, because I have overcome the world. Now, think about it. How did he do that? How did he overcome the world? That overcoming of the world, which is the basis and the grounds for you not fearing, for us not fearing, how did he accomplish that? He accomplished it through suffering. The redemptive purpose and goal and design of suffering, all of redemption accomplished through a God-provided sufferer. So, guys, um, whereas, um, I, I may have this wrong, so I, I want to say Buddhism denies the existence of pain. Uh, maybe it's Baha'i. I, but um, Christianity does not de- deny the existence of pain. Christianity tells you that Life is full of difficulty. But what it does is offer us a Savior who accomplished everything that he intended to accomplish through suffering. We have a big brother sufferer which lends some kind of... um, meaning and purpose and design to our own. How did our Savior do it? I mean, uh, what he did, he accomplished through suffering and it produced the deliverance from ultimate suffering. There's, There's goal, there's intent, there's design, there's purpose, there's meaning. Now, I think you all well know that in the midst of it, it's hard to sort that out. But where you start in the midst of suffering is there. The Savior that I call my own is the Savior who accomplished all that he accomplished via suffering. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell with the goal and purpose of saving his people.
folks, there's meaning in our suffering as well. Certainly not as um, stupendous as that. But in the midst of it, you've got to remind yourself there's meaning and purpose behind it. That was free of charge. Let's, let's quit right there. Our Father, I, I do pray that you'll use um, the, the, these truths to soothe the aching souls of your people. Not just that about suffering, but that the, that the Son of Man would, um, would launch his redemptive purposes knowing that the apex of it would be a moment when he would be separated from the fellowship and, and favor of his Father, something that he had enjoyed from all eternity. Indeed, O oh God, uh, our Savior becomes sweeter, he becomes more lovely when we understand the, um, the provisions that he, had, he has made and what it cost him to make them. Might that um, stir again in the souls of your people? Might our, um, might our great motive for a holy life be that we want to say thank you for what he suffered under Pontius Pilate, his being killed and buried and even tasting hell for us. We, um, we thank you for all of that, and we do so, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.